You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. I still think that one of the most spectacular things to just come across in the wild is a fallen tree. I love whether it's being on a trail or even just driving down the road when you see a tree that wasn't snapped in half, but ripped up from the root and turned upside down. It's an incredible sight because you get a picture of of just how massive that root ball is because there's an incredible crater underneath it where the tree used to rest. And you see this tree that's 20, 30, 40, 50 feet tall that's just toppled over now laying on the ground. Something that once stood so high and so majestically now brought down. And part of why that scene is so impressive looking and and bewildering, no matter how many times I see it, is that it's a reminder that even the largest tree can fall when the roots aren't deep enough for the wind that blows. Even the largest trees with these massive root balls too big to be lifted up can be torn from the ground if the size of the storm is greater than the depth of the roots. And I think that might be partly why a couple of chapters ago, Paul encouraged us to avoid silly and irreverent myths and to avoid arguing amongst one another over, over silly and meaningless things that don't cause any growth, but only cause harm to those who hear and those who participate in them. Because as we saw a couple weeks ago, those silly, irreverent kind of arguments, particularly about things doctrinal or theological, have the ability to make people feel very tall. If you're able through apologetics or just good polemics to be able to argue your way and navigate your way through doctrinal discussions and arguments and fights and to come across feeling like you won the debate, it can make someone feel very tall and make someone feel very strong. But really, there's nothing below the surface. As we approach chapter three of 2 Timothy, where we've been learning what it means to be ministers of the gospel as a church body and how this idea of ministry and service and mission is meant to be intertwined and ingrained in everything that we do. It's important that we don't just have the right words, but that we are genuinely, deeply and firmly rooted in the truth of God's word. As we were discussing a couple weeks ago, this idea of not arguing over silly or reverent myths, we wanted to, I wanted to be clear that the walk away from that is not that we shouldn't care about doctrine or theology. In fact, it's our desire to be a deep and doctrinally sound, theologically rich church, not so that we can be some kind of different brand of church, not so that we can be the kind of Christians who win arguments and win debates, but so that we can know our God and know him well, know the gospel deeply and personally, and then be able to stand when opposition, oppression, and even persecution comes because we're not shallow. Our roots don't go just to the surface, willing to be toppled over at any blow of the wind, but we are deeply rooted in our faith and can stand boldly in the midst of opposition and fight hard for the advancement of the gospel in our world. And so we're going to look at the importance of that this morning 
as we cover all of 2 Timothy chapter 3. And this is the word of God. It says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, and lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving God, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men have also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as it was of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. With persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. The man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. God, we are always at this point so thankful for your word. But as we look at this passage that reminds us how essential it is to the life and ministry and endurance of a follower of Christ. God, we are just overwhelmed with gratitude at the fact that you love us enough to speak to us, to teach us, lead us, guide us, correct us, and encourage us on to the life that you've called us to live. So now as we reserve this time, to be taught by your word and led by your word and moved by your spirit. God, I pray that you give us a passion and a desire to be so deeply rooted in our knowledge of your word and of who you are and the power of the gospel that nothing this world brings against us could cause us to even bend in the wind, much less fall over. So we put this time in your hands, teach us and guide us. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if there was an eschatology bingo card, 
2020 seems like the kind of year that would check all of those boxes to the point where, and I think it was somewhere around the revelation of the possible infestation of murder hornets. I kind of wondered to myself a little bit, do I need to go back and re-preach Revelation? Have I gotten it wrong? Because I would feel pretty resolute that these aren't the kind of signs that we're looking for in regards to Christ's return. But man, this is feeling a little left behind-ish. It's getting kind of weird. And the reality is people, and we've talked about this a lot, there's a desire for many people in all different generations to try to find enough things that you can say, oh, here are all these signs. And this kind of looks like what scripture is trying to say about the lead up to the end times, to the time when Christ returns to make everything right and everything new. And we start to draw these dots and try to bring all these connections. And one of the places in scripture outside of Revelation and Daniel and those kind of big eschatology, apocalyptic kind of texts, one of the places that people tend to go to to identify their generation as the last is this passage here in 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is a passage of scripture that people throughout time, the generations and generations of, of Christians have been able to look to and say, oh, this must be about our generation. Because when you read through this, it says there'll be times of great difficulty, for the, the, these last days will come with times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, going on and on and on. And we can look around and say, yeah, that's, that's this generation. That's us. That's the people all around us in the world today. And so every generation would think to be able to look to that passage and say, this must be the sign that Christ is returning and that these are the last days. And every generation has been wrong, but also right. Because we have to remember what the New Testament writers were communicating when they said things like these last days and this last generation and that these times are near. All through the New Testament, the, the meaning and the definition of that term seems to be very clearly, however long God continues to tarry and sending Christ to return and making everything right and everything new after his death and his resurrection. This phrase, the last days, come, encompasses the fullness of the spectrum between Christ's resurrection and his return. And what we see here in these first few, chapter, excuse me, first few verses of chapter 3 is a description of the world in which we live, a world in which this previous generation of followers of Jesus has lived, that people 400 years ago, 800 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, at the time that Paul was writing this, this was just as true about the world in which Paul lived as it is about the world in which we lived. See, the gospel came to bring light into the darkness. Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, John says that in him was the light and the light of man, and the darkness can't overtake it. But it doesn't mean that the darkness is gone. In fact, Christ lit that candle of light in the midst of the darkness and then has called upon the church to be the light in the darkness, to be a reenactment of Genesis chapter one. Jesus came in and said, let there be light. And the light was us. 
The light was the followers of Christ. The light was the church to go out and to spread the good news of the gospel. But there would be an assumption there that when light comes into the darkness, when truth comes into the lie, when goodness breaks into wickedness, that people would flock towards the light. They would celebrate the truth. They would long for goodness and righteousness and a restored relationship with God. But we know that's not really the case. When Paul says that the last days will come times of difficulty, he's not talking about murder hornets and earthquakes. But it's because of the sad reality of the spiritual condition of the world in which we live. Look at these words that Paul uses to describe the world. He says, for people will be lovers of self. And all of these things are so fully in contrast against the nature of the gospel and against the nature of Christ. He says they'll be lovers of self. They'll care for themselves not only more than they care for God, but they'll care for themselves more than they care for their neighbors. They'll care for themselves more than they care for the people that God has placed around them and in their lives, and they'll only seek their own selfish gain and not any good for anyone else. They'll be lovers of money. Money, this empty human construct that at the core of it doesn't mean anything and yet seems to drive everything that we do. Paul says they'll be lovers of money. They'll be proud and arrogant, wanting to boister themselves up, wanting to make themselves known and elevate themselves above their neighbors, even at the expense of their neighbors, even to the point where they'll be abusive, hurting people physically hurting people emotionally and mentally and even spiritually, disobedient to their parents, rejecting the authority that God is putting in their lives, rejecting that commandment of bringing honor to the generations that have come before you, ungrateful, not caring anything about the incredible blessings that God has given, but rejecting his goodness outright, unholy, not set apart, but just blending into the patterns and the ways of the world. Heartless, not willing to stand for what is good and what matters, not having the boldness and the courage to live the life that God has called them to live, not having the boldness and the courage to stand for others and speak on behalf of those who are broken and hurting and poor and oppressed. Unappeasable, never satisfied, always filled with a desire for more, always filled with a longing for something else, a new experience, a new thing, a new relationship, something that's going to fill the void, but never finding that satisfaction, but just gluttonously filling their lives with anything that they can to try to replace God. Slanderous, putting down their neighbors with their words treacherous and reckless, not putting any sort of thought into what they do, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then it gets so hard here saying, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Paul says, this is the kind of world in which we live. And we know that that's true. We know that that's the world in which we live. 
We know that's the world in which we have lived. Things aren't getting progressively worse. Things are just staying right in the same place of this being the constant reality, the constant world in which the church is called to work. But the reality is all of these things are things that are true about even followers of Christ before we meet the grace and mercy of God. Before he reaches into the darkness and calls us out into marvelous light, this is who we were. But if you were in Christ, by the grace of God, he has called you out from it. And so our calling is to live another way. Our calling is to live as light in the midst of darkness, to live as truth in the midst of lies, to live as the polar opposite of all of these things for the glory of God and for the good of our neighbors. But this actually begins not with action, but as we've already seen throughout the book of 2 Timothy, it begins with an understanding of the gospel and what Christ has done for us. I've talked already about the danger of mistaking self-deprecation for holiness. And a lot of times this especially comes with those of us who really want to emphasize grace because it's all grace. We know that the salvation comes by faith through grace alone so that no one can boast that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. There's nothing we can do to love or honor or glorify God on our own because our sin is so great that our righteousness is like filthy rags before God. And so he has to step in through the death and resurrection of Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit and snatch us out, break the chains of our sin and save us by his grace. And then it's of no requirement of ours because we could never wipe ourselves clean enough. And so he does it for us. But a lot of times, as we recognize our wretched estate before Christ, as we understand that all these things were true about who we are, we sometimes forget the change that Jesus has made in and for us. As we've seen in Paul's description of the gospel, God didn't leave us as a miry wretch. God didn't leave us as these lovers of self and money and proud and arrogant, but he has called us out of that and made us new, that the old is past and the new has come, that if you put your faith in Christ, that you are a new creation. And so when we sit and we wallow about in that guilt and that shame and say, oh, I'm just a worthless, miserable wretch, that is denying the power of the gospel and the working of Christ and the Holy Spirit in our lives. And Paul recognizes that here as he lays out this roll call of all these things that the world is. In verse 10, he says, you, however, you, Timothy, however, are different. You, follower of Christ, you Christian who is trusted in Jesus, you are different. He says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. And continuing verse 11, he says, my persecutions and sufferings. Paul says that if you are in Christ, you have been made different. That salvation isn't simply forgiveness. It's not even simply a fresh start, but that you have been transformed by the Holy Spirit of God into something new. 
You're no longer bound to the patterns of this world. You're no longer enslaved to sin. You're no longer under the condemnation of sin. You have been set free and called into the light. And that's where we have to begin. We have to understand the difference that's been made when someone puts their faith and their hope in Jesus, because otherwise that guilt and that shame, no matter how holy or righteous we may perceive it to be, is going to be a hindrance and a stumbling block for us to be able to stand out into the world and be ambassadors of God's reconciliation and ministers of the gospel wherever he calls us to go. Because it's then that we can realize that because Jesus has saved me out of this, because he has made me different, then now I can answer that call to live differently in a way that honors and glorifies God and also in a way that builds up, loves, and encourages my neighbor. You see, once we're saved by Jesus and we recognize that change from the inside out, We are free to live a life that shines in darkness, to live a life of truth in the midst of lies, of peace in the midst of violence. We can go on and on and on and on. He has set us completely free from all of those things that we were so that we can walk into who he's called us to be. So instead of being lovers of self, We're the kind of people who count other people more significant than ourselves, not only looking to our own needs, but also looking to the needs of others, loving our neighbors as ourselves, and most importantly, loving our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And as we love him and he teaches us to love our neighbors, acting on that in selfless, sacrificial love for those around us, not lovers of money engaging our success the way the world around us tells us to gauge success and stability, but lovers of the grace and mercy of God, knowing that whether I have much or I have little, that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And no matter what my bank account says, be it high, low, or negative, that God can use me in incredible and awesome ways. Not proud or arrogant, but the kind of people who humble ourselves before God and live and act and serve humbly everywhere he calls us to go. Not as people who are abusive to others, but use our lives to build others up, to strengthen others, to love others, and to care for others. The kind of people who honor our fathers and mothers even when they're not, if you may be here and not have the most Christ honoring father or mother in your life, but that commandment stands for us to live a life that honors those who have come before us, that reflects well on our parents, even if they didn't deserve it, that reflects well on our holy and heavenly father, living lives that lead people to honor where they've come from. Not ungrateful, but living lives of thankfulness with every breath, thanking God for all that he's given us, not unholy, but recognizing that we've been called to be holy as our heavenly father is holy and to live a life worthy of our calling. And so to live our lives set apart for righteousness sake and to love and serve God in everything that we do, not being heartless, but not only coming boldly before the throne of God, but recognizing that he has sent us out into the world to be bold ambassadors of the gospel and to make his goodness and his grace known in everything that we do. 
to not be unappeasable, trying to fill our lives with every little thing that comes along, but to find our satisfaction in Christ and in Christ alone, knowing that all we need is Christ to be satisfied and fulfilled, being the kind of people who are self-controlled, not slanderous, but using our words to build others up. Loving God more than we even love pleasure and not being the kind of people who have the appearance of godliness, but walk in the power of God each and every day. That's who Jesus died to make us. That's who Jesus rose again through the Holy Spirit to give us the power to be. And so when we neglect those things, we're taking all that that Christ has done for us, all that that Christ has changed within us and saying, no thanks. But we need to recognize that difference that's been made and the countercultural way that the gospel calls us to live, to know that we have been set free so that we can do that well, no matter who we were, this is who we are. And we need to walk in that pattern of life and be ministers of the gospel of grace. But this creates a little bit of a conflict, doesn't it? I like to play with magnets because they're fun. And it's fun to watch magnets when you hold them just a little distance apart and then they just just suck together. It's a brilliant miracle of God's creative design to watch magnets work. It's weird and it's awesome. But what's even more fun is when you turn that one around and you try to bring them together, but that opposite reaction, that force pushes them apart. And if you have magnets that are strong enough, you can't physically push them together because that force in between them is so opposite from one to the other that it won't let you bring them together. And in verse 12 and 13, Paul reminds us that that is how the gospel and the world tend to work. As much as we try to bring the gospel in the world, it's going to resist it and push out just as strongly. And once the gospel becomes so present in a dark and wicked world, that force begins to try to push back against it and cause harm to it. And so Paul in verse 11 says that that you also shared in my persecutions and sufferings. And then he continues on in verse 12 saying, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But he doesn't just stop there. He says, While evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. He said, this is going to continue to to get worse as an oppression against you as you grow in the gospel. And people around you are going to continue to grow from bad to worse to worse. And they're going to continue to grow in not only their oppression for the church, but in their teaching of false doctrine. And so in response to this, while Paul says that there is persecution and opposition to the church, Paul says, so of course, what that means is that Christians, when they're oppressed by the gospel and they feel persecuted because of the gospel, they need to, to, to batten up the hatches. They need to get angry. They need to get mean. They need to get loud. They need to get violent. They need to take up arms and demand their rights and remind everyone that this is a a nation supposedly built on Christian foundations. And so I demand my rights. Not quite. In fact, what Paul says is much different than when Christians, for the sake of the gospel, 
experience opposition, oppression, and persecution? Here's what Paul tells us to do in verse 14. While people are going from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, he says, as for you, continue in what you've learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. Now, Paul says, Christian, when people speak badly about you because of your faith, when people want to silence you because of your faith, when people want to oppose you, oppress you, or even persecute you for your faith, you just keep doing what you're doing. And this isn't unfounded in scripture. We see in the Old Testament an example of this in the life of Daniel. As Daniel knows, there is a conspiratory threat against him. That people want to see Daniel not just imprisoned, but put to death because of his faith and because of the threat that he has against them. Because of the, the threat that they perceive about him and his faith. He knows that if he continues to pray, that this is what's going to happen. And maybe Daniel could have gone to the king and say, hey, I know what those people did. They tricked you and they're leading you astray. But here's all the truth. And here's what you need to do. And remember what I've done for you. And remember the rights that I should have as this person of high regard in the kingdom. Remember all these things. He could have done it, but he didn't. Instead, just like he did the day before, he walked to his window three times a day, knelt in plain view and prayed and went willingly into the den of lions, trusting in God more than he feared men. And so when faced with persecution and opposition for the sake of the gospel, it's our calling to continue doing what we do, to continue believing what we believe, to continue sharing the good news that Christ has given us, and to continue loving our neighbors. It doesn't matter what anyone may bring against us. It doesn't matter what difficulties we may endure for the sake of the gospel. Our calling remains the same to continue in ministry, to continue in spreading the gospel and to continue in the faith. But the problem is most of us aren't ready to do that. And so that's why lashing out, fighting back or making demands seems a little more natural. Because to do this, we can't simply hope for some sort of special power to kick in when false teaching and persecution surround us. Because if it's false teaching, we're not going to be able to know what it is if we're not spending time in scripture. If it's opposition or oppression, we're not going to know how we're called to live and from where we can find our strength whenever those things come along. No, the only solution that will enable us to do this is to be deeply rooted in the word of God, not self-confident because we read a couple books that teach us some good doctrine and we can argue some points and proof texts, not self-assured because we think we're really good at talking our way out of things or into things or because we go to church every Sunday and so we think that makes us some sort of stable foundational Christian, but to be deeply rooted in the truth of God's word. You see, when Paul is describing this onslaught of false teaching and persecution that will come against Christians. 
He says, as for you, continue in what you have learned and what you firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then again, in the same description of how to stand against persecution, opposition, and false teaching, he reminds us of this truth that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. Earlier in this passage, Paul reminds us that not only is there oppression and persecution, but false teachers will come in and try to steal away the weak, those who aren't deeply rooted and founded in the truth of God's word and lead people astray by sins and by tuning into your passions. But we are called to have our roots dug deeply in the word of God. You see, God's word is for us in all seasons. It is breathed out by God to give us life. But not only that, but he uses his words, as Paul says here, to teach us and to guide us and lead us in the way that we should go. That it gives us reproof and correction. When our doctrine goes sideways, when our actions start to to wander away from what God has called us to be and what God has called us to do, then it's God's word through the Holy Spirit that corrals us and leads us back to where we need to go. And it's for training us in righteousness so that anyone who trusts in the name of Jesus will be competent in our faith and will be equipped to do the work that God has called us to do. It's all of this that God's word does for us so that we can know who has saved us, who we are in Christ, and because of him, how we can stand firm, not only in the work that he's called us to do, but even to stand firm in the midst of opposition and to be equipped for good work so that we can shine as lights in the midst of the darkness. But so many of us are too comfortable and satisfied with being a tall tree with shallow roots. And when real wind comes, when real opposition comes against us, those shallow roots are going to prove to be far too inferior to stand tall. We need to be the kind of people who focus first on being deeply rooted so that God can elevate us and lift us to where we need to be. And this means that we need to be the kind of people, we need to be the kind of church who never feels like we've reached an adequate amount of understanding of who God is or could quote the right amount of Bible verses or have just the right level of depth in doctrine or theology, but that we are constantly digging deeper and deeper into God's word individually, together with one another, and as a church when we gather together, going deeper and deeper into God's word, understanding better who he is, being richer in our doctrine and deeper in our theology so that we can articulate the gospel well so that we can love our neighbors well, so that we can worship God well, but also so that we have the strength to stand, not on our own strength or accomplishments, but by the power of God and the Holy Spirit through his word, that we can be able to stand against opposition, oppression, and false teaching. And not only will we not fall over, but not even bend or crack because we will be standing firm in the truth of God's word. And if all of us take that mission seriously, 
then there is no limit to what God can do in and through our lives and in and through our church. Next week, we're going to talk about the importance of preaching the gospel in every season. And we can't even begin to answer that call if we don't first answer this one of being firmly and deeply rooted in scripture, learning who our God is, how he saved us, how that salvation changes us from the inside out, equips us for good work, and allows us to stand in the midst of great difficulty here in these last days. Let's pray. Almighty God, it is good to remember that you are almighty, that nothing can stand against you, Nothing can stand against your word. That we know that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. So God, forgive us of the times when we don't take that truth seriously. Pray that you help us to give us a passion for depth in scriptural knowledge doctrinal truth, and a richness of our theology. Not so that we can be a deep church. Not so that we can be a serious church. So that we can be a church that worships you well, that loves you wholeheartedly, that loves and serves our neighbors, and is prepared to stand against whatever may come, continuing in our belief, and our work, and our love. So God, give us a passion that burns deep in our bones to be immersed in your word. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.